back to the Idiom Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with Adam. Adam is an indie electronic music producer who's released on labels like Ultra, Foreign Family Collective, and Lowy Palace, and he's released official remixes for artists like Odeza, Selena Gomez, and Jai Wolf. Now, if you're currently struggling to find the right genre or style for your artist project, this is the episode for you. We discuss Adam's background and music, looking at the lengthy road that he took to find his unique sound. Adam had success early on in a style that he really didn't love making, which is more common than you might think. So we talk a lot about the importance of finding a style of music that both you enjoy writing and fans respond to. We also talk about his early success with remix competitions, the importance of finding validation early on in your production career, and what he learned taking a gap year to focus on music. On the production side, we dive deep into his writing workflow, looking at how he effectively builds ideas from scratch. We discuss how he creatively uses splice samples, his approach to layering, and why trusting your taste is critical for your growth as a producer. We also discuss the process of writing music that's built to be performed live, so if you've ever thought about adding a live performance to your artist project, there's definitely some great advice in here for you. And towards the end, we also talk about the perpetual overwhelm that pretty much all producers face. There's so many things to focus on. How can you manage to stay focused and productive while not burning out? Now, one last thing, Adam is releasing his debut album tomorrow on Lowy Palace. Do yourself a favor and check it out. It's a really great body of work. I'll play you one of the singles off of it called Way You Move that he did with Fry as we slide into the interview so you can get a feel for his music and for the album. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM Podcast with Adam. the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Kyle, who releases under the name Adam. Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I'm happy to be here. Awesome, man. So to start, I'd love to learn more about your background in music. Go back as far as you'd like, but I'd love to learn what got you into music and later on music production. All right. So I mean, I'll, I'll go pretty far back. Um, my, my first introduction was actually in fifth grade. We had to go into like a temporary building and try out different instruments, you know, and then they were like, oh, you're good for this. You're good for so-and-so. And even at that point, I knew uh, all I wanted to do was play the drums. I was just obsessed. And uh, they were like, no, you're perfect. Your mouth is great for this trombone mouthpiece. You're totally doing that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, I mean, I was super pissed. I was always <laughs> jealous of the kids walking, like the percussion kids walking around with their like xylophone cases and stuff. Well, uh, I got to... Not, I don't have anything against trombone, but I was just not uh, <laughs> not excited about that. Anyway, so funnily enough, um, that same year is when I first heard the song Breathe by Prodigy. Yeah. And that kind of like derailed, I guess, turned my music world upside down a bit. And instead of um, practicing my basic trombone sheet music, I just tried to... Uh, <laughs> play along with that song or like play the um weed melody on the yeah. chorus there the 
come play my game or whatever it is. <laughs> so that's when I decided I wanted to quit. And my parents made me finish out that year. Yeah, so that was my first intro to like playing mm-hmm. music. Um, then luckily enough, my amazing parents got me a drum kit in seventh grade. And I started taking lessons at a local music store. And yeah, that's kind of what started um, my like true passion for music. Uh, because I played drums all throughout until I moved out after high school. And I tried the band thing just with friends. Um, it wasn't anything serious. What kind of music were you into? Like what bands? Um, so in middle school, I was really obsessed with Linkin Park. Yeah. And I, I still like Hybrid Theory and Meteora. I'm st- they still never get old for me. And actually, Mike Shinoda is one of my, he's still one of my like musical heroes. Um, but then that kind of transformed into different kind of rock stuff. And then, I don't know, being a drummer, it kind of naturally went to like more complex drumming stuff. Yeah. And then I landed on being obsessed with dream theater for a while. <laughs> uh, and then like Mike Portnoy. So my drum kit grew a lot yeah. <laughs> throughout that stage. And yeah, so that's, I don't know, at that point, I wasn't really in like, because even though the Prodigy was my, I don't know, that my first introduction to electronic music, I still never, I never went down that path to like listening to it or anything. And that didn't come about until, I don't know, just as I was graduating high school, I think, because that's when, actually, no, I don't think it had just come out, but that's when I first heard Cross by Justice. And that was like, can I swear on this? Go for it. Okay, well, that was just when, it, like, yeah, eight-year-old me was like, "What the fuck?" Like, <laughs> you, I didn't, I didn't know that these like sounds existed. Like, <laughs> that's when I just like wanted to start producing music, like mm. electronic music. Funnily enough, that's not what like that didn't totally start my like hardcore passion path because my friend and I, I'm sure we just found some terrible cracked copy of Ableton because we were broke 18 year olds and we're like let's make music like justice <laughs> and then we realized that's really hard um <laughs> and so after that i kind of backed off a bit and yeah i don't know it's uh it was more like a i had kind of a staggered entry into actually like producing did you end up going to college after high school i did um i went to the university of iowa would you end up studying I always still struggle explaining this because it's not a super common major. Um, So the actual major itself is called informatics. The program the university offered, there's informatics, which is kind of like computer science light. And then you pick your cognate. You could do plenty of things like geography, um, just whatever. And that's where you're supposed to apply your computer knowledge to. Mm -hmm. But And sorry, I'm not trying to drone on about my major too long, but it's actually... No, it's actually important a little bit just because I ended up, my cognate was music. And the only reason I did that it was, was because it was um, essentially like a loophole to get start taking classes for the College of Music without being a music major. So I got to take all of the music major theory classes, the required piano classes, but I didn't actually have to like play an instrument or do rehearsals or performances or anything. Were you taking those classes in the music department just for fun? Or were you like, I want to get better at the music that I'm making? Kind of talk more on that. It was a little bit of both. Um, because I guess choosing informatics and music was my kind of way of 
I mean, computer science and that whole thing is a really sensible kind of safe career choice. Um, but then, yeah, doing the music side is like, that's what I wanted to do. At the same time, I could take classes and still learn about it and get a f- somewhat formal education. So yeah, sounds like the best of both worlds where you get the like yeah, career exactly. focused aspect of the informatics, but you get to tickle your music interest with the music informatics. Yeah, and it, it made my parents very happy too. Um, yes, <laughs> and yeah, it, I mean, it did teach me a lot too. Um, obviously, I'm not applying like a lot of the like voice leading and classical theory things that I've learned um, every day in my EDM production, but it's it's definitely made life a lot easier. Yeah. So when did you start producing, kind of in this time frame? Yeah. So I, the the level of seriousness I took with it was. I kind of eased into it. So I kind of messed around with it my freshman year. Um, Sophomore year is when I kind of, that's when I really like started expanding my tastes with electronic music. Like that's when I first discovered Juna Beats. And then I was like, oh, DJing. I kind of want to DJ. That'd be really cool. Um, (laughs) So I, I actually ended up buying a mixer and I had it for like, I don't know, maybe a week. And I was like, you know, I, I'd really rather be the dude making these songs that DJs play than, I mean, just, just being up there. Um, and I mean, those worlds have kind of morphed now mm-hmm. at this point. Any DJ you see will, for the most part, be a producer too. But yeah, from there is when I just really dove in. And most importantly, I met my friend's older brother. Um, mm-hmm. This is one of my best friends. And I didn't know his older brother too well. And he was like a saxophone prodigy getting his master's in jazz at DePaul. And he was obsessed with pop music and like the production of it. And uh, he's just, it was just fascinating to him. And I, I I mean, we ended up working together a bit. We did, um, I guess I won't go give too much away, but we actually entered a remix contest for Snoop Dogg and Kid (laughs) Cudi's song on Indaba. And we got, I think we got like the most votes and we ended up getting like third place or something. And um, just the excitement from all of that was that really did something to me. And it's just kind of like from there, I I just wanted to keep chasing that dragon, you know, because it's just it feels so I mean, it, it still does, but it felt just so incredible to have all these people reacting so well to something you made yeah it's like both accolades and validation to a point for what you're doing yeah exactly um (laughs) but it was like i don't know how much validation i actually got because look i mean if i'm being honest his name's drew he (laughs) i mean he really did most of it i think my main contribution was actually making vocal chops for the bridge um and because my my songwriting skills and production skills were did not hold a candle to his. Um, and yeah, I guess to keep this history going, um, we worked together for probably like a year. Nothing really happened, um, but that time was pretty invaluable to me because obviously, I mean, he's still the smartest person I've ever known. And he taught me a lot and I guess motivated me a lot, too. So what, once we stopped working together, that's kind of when it's kind of like I was left out to sea and had to figure out stuff for my own that I was kind of banking on him for. So, yeah, after he like decided like he had to move on after school when he was done and pay for student loans and whatnot. And 
so it's kind of like a what what do I do kind of situation. And I was still intent and planned on making pop music for other people because at this point I didn't want to be my own artist. Um, and yeah, I, I was just really interested in production. So at this point, were you out of school and working a nine to five? Where were you at with that? Um, no, I was still in school. Well, actually, no. So funnily enough, um, right when we won that remix contest, that was the end of my sophomore year of college. Okay. And I was actually sl- like, I really was not happy with life at that point. I hated being in Iowa City. Um, and I was... I had everything I needed to go study abroad in England for a year. Um, I just needed to buy the plane ticket. And then we won that remix contest. And it was like, oh, shit, like maybe Drew and I could like we could do something with this. So I didn't go and I took that year off of school. And I just kind of worked part time at a before and after school program who, funnily enough, Drew, his mom was <laughs> the director of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that kind of that year was. <laughs> Looking back, it wasn't as productive as it should have been. Um, like I, I did spend a lot of time making music, but I don't know. I spent a lot of time watching soccer and playing video games as well. Um, so your idea <laughs> so was, I don't know. So your idea was to like take this year off to kind of focus on music, get your career off the ground, and just didn't really put in as much time as you would have wanted. Yeah, and it, it just exactly, and it just it didn't come together. And my parents, uh, my parents obviously encouraged me to go back the following year. So I did. And um, once I got back and I was in school again and I I realized, I mean, I was getting close to graduating. That's when reality kind of set in that I I needed to figure my shit out, whether I'm going to go for music, do something in computers. So that's kind of when I really hunkered down with the music thing. I started entering a lot of remix contests because in my mind, I mean, I didn't know anyone in the industry and it's like, how do you produce music for people if you don't, if you don't have any in? Mm -hmm. So I figured, you know, um, I could, if I won a remix contest or something, maybe that would get me my first contact, you know? Yeah. So after many, many failed attempts, um, that kind (laughs) of brings us to my, the year I after I graduated um, from college, I told I gave myself a year essentially. Um, I was still just working part time at that before after school program, living in a very cheap apartment because my hours with that job were seven to eight thirty. What like two forty five to five forty five? So um, I I basically just work on music in between those hours. Yeah, and nothing was still happening. I didn't know what kind of music I wanted to make. Um, cause at that time I was making like heavy, heavier shit. I was obsessed with like feed me and seven lions and it just wasn't, it wasn't happening. And then a few things happened. I, I got really obsessed with like Oliver uppermost and Oliver Nelson. And I was introduced to Odessa and my computer <laughs> crashed. So I had to reformat the whole thing. So it's like, it's like, okay, I have these new influences who are totally different from just making like dirty, hard dubstep. Like this is, this is my chance. I'm going to try and do this new style of music, see if I like making it. And yeah, so I entered four remix contests and I won the second two or the final two of those. 
one was for per- Golden by Parade of Lights, and the second was for Jealous by Chromio. It sounds like it'd be a big deal, but it it ended up yeah. not being one. Um, I think the biggest thing it did was convince my my parents that I mm. wasn't delusional <laughs> about this <laughs> because I, I was kind of in like a shitter get off the get off the pot position with I don't know like doing something with my wife because I, I, I the job I was working wasn't sustainable I was dead broke that entire year um, and yeah I, I needed something to happen and fortunately that did and sorry I don't want to make this too long but just to shoehorn yeah. this in a little bit because I forgot. That was actually the time my grandparents offered to move me into Minnesota with them. Um, and I won those two contests two weeks before I moved up there. And I moved up there because they're like, hey, you can spend a year here and figure your stuff out. Um, it's an awesome offer. I know. It was because they knew I hated Iowa. They knew I was broke. They're just amazing and supportive people. So I got up there and won those remix contests. So that was a huge motivation boost. As I was like adjusting to even moving in, I came up with a song idea and I I thought it was garbage. Like this was the first like real original song I'd ever made. And I sent it to my two friends like two, I don't know, two or three weeks later after I forgot about it and then thought about it again. And they're like, hey, this is good. You should release it. So I finished it and I released it. And this like channel on SoundCloud with 2,500 followers ended up posting it for me because we had talked. And a week later, I got hit up by someone from Atlantic, who I'm still friends with. And two weeks after that, I got an email from Mr. Suicide Sheep. And yeah, that's kind of my history up until how my quote unquote career started. So the second you did that first original, everyone has kind of jumped towards you. Yeah, it was just this weird series of events because I'm still not entirely sure why Mr. Suicide Sheep or how he found it. And when the guy from Atlantic found me, it only had like a thousand plays on SoundCloud. Like there was no reason for him to find it. I think that's something that people forget about or don't think about with good ARs is they just scour SoundCloud and Spotify. They're everywhere and they find artists that have such small followings, but that's their job is to find new original music. And almost it's like nine out of 10 times they're reaching out to people more so than they are signing music that gets sent to them. Because it's a lot of these kind of hidden gems that are like, I don't know how to build these connections. And tying that back into what you were saying with the remix contest, you're like, I don't know how to produce for pop people. I don't know anyone. So there's like an avenue here because I can remix Chromio and become friends with them. But it's like ironic that that's the actual way that you ended up getting those connections was by you just being like, I guess this song's okay. My homies like it. And then getting everyone jumping to you. Yeah, no, I think you're 100% right. Like I always... Sometimes I get asked about like, um, I don't know, like how, how do you get your foot in the door and whatnot? And sometimes I feel like it's a kind of like a cop out answer because it seems like it. But I always just say like people like a lot of people are always looking for good new music. Um, yeah. Like it's their job. It's in their best interest to find these new fresh artists who show a lot of promise and try and develop them. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I'm glad to hear. Yeah, <laughs> to hear you feel that way as well. Totally, I feel like I get a lot of people on our website and blog kind of asking about that, being like, the industry doesn't support like new and upcoming artists. I'm like, they do. 
That's like what labels, you know, their job is. Yeah, they like support the industry heavyweights, but there's still so many people that have a lot of connections and power looking for up and comers because there's a lot of, you know, to a degree, there's money in that in the industry. So yeah, good music will cut through if it's good and innovative and still palatable and approachable. And I think that's what they saw in your music when it had, you know, very little plays. And I'm guessing at that point, you really didn't have much of a following either. No, I had, um, what, I think 20 SoundCloud followers, 30. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have a Facebook page, any social media. Um, But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're totally right. And I mean, I think it's, you also have to acknowledge there's a degree of luck. Just totally. Because, I mean, there are, like, it's such a saturated industry. Like, there are, I'm sure, plenty of incredibly amazing people who do just not end up getting that, like, final rung of the ladder and getting noticed. But um, I think with all the YouTube channels out there that have, like, submissions, little emails and stuff for it, because actually, shit, first... I submitted my Chromio remix to Mr. Suicide Sheep after that contest, and he he responded, but he turned it down. But it's like, okay, he at least listened. I don't know, maybe that was why he ended up hitting me up about Glow. So I want to go back to that year you took in Minnesota, because I think it's a really interesting idea doing a gap year, whether it's in the middle of college or after high school. Like, do you feel like that was an important part of being able to get your project to where it is now? Like, obviously you had those two remix contests that you had won at that point, but I think there's this like idea of the 10,000 hours that you need to put in to, you know, get, become a professional in what you're doing. You obviously don't need that much when it comes to music production, but it's such a advantage to not have to, you know, work too much and to have, you know, rent paid for by your grandparents and just be able to focus so much time on music like looking back do you think that was kind of like a pivotal experience and opportunity for you it was honestly one of the most important things that's ever happened to me um i i every day i mean i mean that's a little bit of hyperbole but i i do just feel such an extreme level of like gratefulness and i'm just so thankful because i even with glow getting picked up by suicide sheep and um if i didn't have because i actually stayed I stayed with them for four years. I could have moved out way before that, but um, I mean, I won't go into like my family details, but it was just a great situation. I helped them. They helped me. Um, but without having at least that first year, I I honestly am not sure things would have worked out for me just because I still didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do artistically just because being an artist was, it wasn't anything I planned on doing. And then all of a sudden I... I am one and I'm expected to have be cranking out these new songs. And yeah, so I, I honestly think it was invaluable. So kind of on that note, I want to dive deeper into that idea of like figuring out what you want artistically. You mentioned that like Justice got you into dance music. You were doing like Feed Me and Seven Lions. If you go back far enough on your page, you see more of like the new disco, Oliver, Oliver um, Nelson stuff. How did you kind of slide into the style that you've been producing for like the past three, four years? It was, it was actually really hard. Like, um, it's one of the biggest challenges I've, I've really had to face mentally. Um, just because like with glow, I, even though it did well, I, I don't know. I, I, I personally just was never that in love with it. Um, 
I mean, I'm really proud of it and listening back, like, yeah, I mean, I can enjoy it, but it's, it's not the kind of music I wanted yeah. to make necessarily. I, I don't know. Cause like you said, that first year, like with glow, that was very new disco-y because I actually, <laughs> I won Odessa's remix yeah. contest that year too. And that was a very new disco-y remix. Um, after that happened, I don't know. It didn't, it felt like more what I, I, I felt like I was supposed to make it, not like I wanted to make it. Um, just cause that's kind of what I was comfortable with, which is also why I struggled to make music that whole year. I mean, I only, I think I only released like, I don't know, maybe three singles and that's not how you should be following up such a huge opportunity and like such a huge level of exposure. And it sounds like you were struggling to maintain a good consistent output because these, you know, new disco remixes worked out well. And you're like, cool, people know me for the new disco and they like my new disco, but I don't want to make it. And it's not working out well for me. Yeah, that was and it just really it really got to me. And I kind of came to a standstill because after I won the Odessa contest, I played at Bonnaroo. That was my first show ever. Yeah, I about died of a panic attack. <laughs> um, and after that, it was just like all time high. And then I did one remix, which was still kind of new disco-y. And then just like nothing happened. Um, like all this stuff went on. And I don't know, I was just kind of sitting back at home in Duluth wondering what I should do. I mean, during this time, that's when I started to get more and more into, I don't know, more indie stuff. But, like, I guess I still consider Odessa fairly like indie EDM. And that's also when I got really into Tycho. And yeah, I, I think a big part of the development, how I got to my current sound is just discovering these new artists. And um, I also just, I just realized it's, it's something I enjoy making yeah. too. Um, it just came a lot more natural to me. And yeah, I mean, to be honest, because you say like three or four years, but I, I don't think I felt comfortable and confident with what I was doing until probably two years ago. It took that long. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to hear that because I think people see you, if they were, you know, let's just say following you from the start, they see you releasing music on these big labels and big outlets. And for three or four years, it seems like you weren't necessarily happy with what you were releasing. It was, you know, going places and kind of pushing your career. But at the end of the day, you weren't as happy as you could have been. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I mean, I know there's a degree of like, oh, boohoo, <laughs> Yeah, like you're, you're, you're like having some success in this extremely difficult industry to break into. But I mean, the, the entire reason I got into it is just because I, I like making music. So if I'm, if I'm going to take the route of being my own artist, like I want, I want to at least do what I want to make, you know, and as a result, I think it makes you more prolific too. Totally. I mean, I think I'm sure whether or not you think about it, you're applying some of the same techniques that you learned trying to emulate Feed Me and Seven Lions in the stuff that you're producing now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's still stuff I picked up from, yeah, trying to make all sorts of weird stuff. I think that's that's really helped me shape things into uh, how I'm currently sounding. So kind of catching us back to right now, what is your general trajectory for the Atom Project? It's kind of a good question. Um, I honestly don't know. Um, at, I mean, at this point, my, I mean, I think my next step is really just to start playing more shows. Um, just because, I mean, I've, I've had plenty of success with like s 
streaming numbers and reaching a lot of people. But I mean, I bet I've still only played like 10 total shows. And yeah. I think that's, I don't know, held me back in terms of like really developing, I don't know, more of a like an involved fan base. Cause like I don't, none of these people are like seeing me and I get tons of messages about it. Like, where, when are you coming to so and so city? But it's like, sorry, I don't have any shows yeah. lined up. But I, and I think that's just, uh, for like, cause even, even like for the few shows that I go to, whenever I see an artist, I feel, I don't know, I feel a lot more like, connected with them in a way and yeah i think i think that's kind of my next stuff and i'm hoping that this album release sort of changes that and gets me a little more interest from the booking side yeah it's this like funny idea that i think people are like starting to get keen to with the i don't know difference between spotify plays and social media followers and the ability to kind of like sell hard tickets like I think the you know most dominant example of that is like the lo-fi hip-hop artists that have millions and millions of plays on all of their songs, but none of those people go and like connect with the artist project and connect with it to a point that they can grow show. So it's like a different intention almost in order to kind of like develop a fan base off of music on Spotify, even though Spotify is the place to go and you can monetize off of that. It's a different approach than it might have been five or 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I'm really glad you mentioned that because it stresses me out all the time yeah um and i've noticed the exact same thing that you have like all these lo-fi songs with like 13 million plays and stuff you look and they're like how do they only have like 2000 spotify followers that's insane and i mean i do the same thing for myself to be honest that's why i don't i try not to look at any of my numbers at this point just because it it stresses me out but it's like man i have all these plays and like should i only have like i don't even know how many instagram followers i have it's not very many but I, then yeah. i try to connect those two and it's like what's wrong with me what am i doing wrong but <laughs> i the whole numbers world is it's just they're so vague every single number you see is so vague like i've got a buddy who has maybe like fifteen thousand monthly listeners on spotify which isn't too much but he sells out every single show he plays yeah and that's huge and there's people that have you know two million monthly listeners on spotify that like can't sell at 150 cap it's this like, it just nothing makes sense. There's no like I know, formula like, to figure I, it out. I wish there was like more of a, I don't know, a clearer way to like read that stuff. But if there is, yeah. I do not know what it is. So if you find out, let me know. I will. Yeah, you do the same. Weird. Um, so I feel like we're kind of up to speed on your career so far. So let's dive into production. Um, first question, you have a blank slate in the dock kind of what is your first move to kind of get going with starting a track um let's see it honestly kind of depends i so i mean something i do is i i'll grab really specific things from splice so i have a very i don't know large organized sample library and um i get inspired a lot just by sounds that could be super simple like I don't know, a 10 minute clip of just some atmospheric sounds. So I don't know, I think a lot of times I'll just browse through stuff like that, drag it in, maybe open up a basic synth or a piano and try and play stuff around it and see what happens. But um, I also have, because for any Logic users out there, I have a huge like directory of channel strips saved. So like for drums, certain kind of synths, blah, blah, blah. So I'll also just load up a bunch of different channel strips from there yeah. just to have lots of different sounds to play around with instead of 
scrolling through synth, synth patches and whatnot, you know? And yeah, it's just playing around till something works, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the way that a lot of artists do. Like, you can't force it. But I like the idea of just starting with sounds that you know work well and you can just like focus on being creative within that and then also like bringing in something new from splice or grabbing like an ambient loop and chopping that up like figuring out a way to build off of that yeah yeah for me that has definitely been um the most effective thing because i've i've tried to just and i still do sometimes like I'll, I'll start totally from scratch and only build out on my sounds but i don't know it's kind of like why deny yourself these tools when they're available yeah and, it's, I kind of like that idea and I think about it almost like starting with a tone where you start with like a similar approach that I use often is just have like a background pad that somebody spent a lot of time on that I can just kind of use as the base and kind of like a mood inspiration and then build everything oh, around man. and like 80% <laughs> of the time I just throw that away but it's like enough to kind of get me in the space that I'm in and I can choose something that fits it whether it's like major minor or something else like I can get something that you know, gets that tone right away then just kind of build an experiment on top of that. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause I, I mean, I'm, I'm legitimately the exact same. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm obsessed with finding atmospheric pad sounds from like sample magic and stuff. And just, I'll even make my own with like guitar tails and put those through reverb and modulation and bounce those out. And yeah, no, that's funny. Cause that's, yeah, <laughs> I think the only, only other person I've talked to who does that as well recently we had uh, an artist dumu on our podcast and he would go through and like just rip like 50 minute like ambient modular gear like jam sessions off youtube and just like chop them up and like put them in the bases of his songs there's like ones they're kind of like asmr for you to sleep to but i think that's, that's kind of awesome. in that same vein where you just have these like yeah. hour-long things of beautiful ambient um like textures and synths that you just go through see what you like and then it just gives you so many original sounds that also like other people really they could have but probably aren't doing and using yeah yeah it's it's i think it's such a great way to do it just because i think there's a mental thing too with just having just starting with nothing yeah i i think it can be kind of intimidating it is for me at least mm. so just having that first step of like okay i have this thing like i can at least build build out around a little bit even if it doesn't stay in um i think that's kind of breaks that barrier down a little bit so i'd say one thing about your music that across the board i really appreciate is your use of like atmospheric textures and layering if somebody were to come up to you and say hey i really suck at layering what is your secret what is your process how would you respond to that it's hard um yeah. <laughs> i it's on i i think the only way i get away with it a lot is just because i spend a lot of time going pretty uh pretty overboard with EQing and just because it's like, you know, I mean, yes, you can layer sounds on top of each other, ideally like achieve this new sound. But I mean, I think the idea behind layering is you're, you're taking different parts from different sounds. So you want to notch, like you might want just uh 3k to 5k from some pad sound, but you want the low yeah. end from another sound. So you notch those or filter those accordingly and stack them and um, I mean, I think that's the most effective way to at least stop sounds from clashing. But <laughs> I mean, I will say as a disclaimer, I dig myself in a lot of production yeah. holes sometimes <laughs> or I'll just I'll just be tossing in pad sounds <laughs> like, oh, this sounds cool. This sounds cool. And then it comes time to <laughs> get it ready to ship it out the door. And it's like, <laughs> this sounds like trash. Like the song is good, but this mix yeah. is garbage. 
So I would, uh, <laughs> I would avoid yeah. doing it too much. And also high pass your reverbs. <laughs> totally. I kind of like the idea of just kind of like building up this block of stuff and then chipping away at it to leave just what you need. I'm not yeah, somebody exactly. that can like, like right out of the door, choose the perfect instrument for every single space in the frequency spectrum. I wish I could, but I'm not that good. But like giving myself more than I need and then mostly using EQ and volume just to kind of shape what I need from each of those is, a, I think, one of the most effective ways to get a bigger atmospheric mix, especially kind of in the style that you're working in, but to not have it be muddy and um, yeah, just like too much clashing going on because you've got a lot going on using all your tools to kind of carve just what you need from each of those. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, just kind of a, cause I mean, I don't, I don't want to stunt my creative process by trying to like think about these super specific technical aspects. So I just kind of throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and at the end, see what sticks and then just kind of pull things back. And um, I mean, mind you, I think, <laughs> I think some of my like, my project files would make a lot of like professional mixing engineers cry, but <laughs> good um, mixing is effective. Know. It's not technical. You're right. You're very right. I <laughs> sometimes, I mean, especially this past week when I've been polishing up this album, I just sometimes <laughs> I'll open some of my EQs or look at like some of my channel strips and just like, yeah, put my head down. One of my um, in shame, like uh, mixing instructors at school used to always reference the like XXX extensions track. Look at me, which is the most like distorted, terrible mix pile of crap song, but it has hundreds of millions of plays. And he's like, it it works like it, this is technically wrong by every single count. It's clipping by like 12 dBs. But if it works, it works. Yeah, I have um, I have told people. Or I guess what I like to tell people yeah. is um, when they ask for like mixing advice, it's much better to have a good song that doesn't sound good than a great, like a perfect mix that's a garbage song. Like no one cares about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a certain threshold there where, I mean, if it sounds like you're playing it out of a, I don't know, like an iPhone and yeah. a tin can. Yeah, that's not, <laughs> it's going to detract from it a little bit, but like. Unless you're a producer like us or something, I mean, most people just, they just care if it's a good song, like that they can sing along to or that makes them feel good. Yeah. Like good mixing, two degree just has to be good enough to kind of get the idea across, which most producers within a year know enough to do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I've been sent stuff by people who just started and they just want some feedback. And I'm, I mean, a lot of times I'm really surprised, like it sounds really cohesive and yeah. everything. And obviously there's like room for improvement there's a lot to learn but it's i've been sent plenty of stuff that it's like this this really wouldn't throw people off or anything so i'm curious you mentioned you really like the fact that you produced a lot of different styles and genres and that kind of helps you get the palette and skill set that you have now looking back was there anything else outside of that that really helped you level up your productions whether it was a more like technical workflow or more like conceptual things that really helped your music sound more professional I mean, ignoring technical stuff, I think the most important thing in my development, at least, was just um, the ability to like trust my ears, you know? I think it's hard at first to trust, because um, like, you'll know something isn't good enough, but you're still not sure mm. why. And um, you can't necessarily pick out what you should do to fix that. And I once I got to a point, and this just took time, um, 
where I could I could trust my ear. It's like this this doesn't sound good enough, or but even though it doesn't, I yeah. can do this to fix it, and I know that I won't listen back in I don't know a week and be like, what was I thinking? Like this isn't actually a fix. But I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Another big development for me was when I I I really tried for a few months to emulate Oliver's production. Um, this was before I won those remix contests. I, and I chose Oliver specifically just because they're, I don't know, they still... It's so polished. Yeah, right? It's just, it just sounds factory made. Like, it's unreal. <laughs> An RIP to Oliver. They're not releasing music anymore, so... But yeah, that, that did a lot for me because then I, I don't know, comparing myself to something with that high of standards got me really looking into what made up such a polished sounding mix and then i kind of started applying that and to be honest i've actually kind of made backwards progress in that sense just because (laughs) i think i've embraced the indie thing a little more so i i've been using a lot more organic things and my mixes aren't as clean and polished as they used to be i think but i guess that's all subjective but i think there's like a aesthetic to that too like you said you can't go overboard we don't want it to sound like an iphone going through a tin can but there's a i don't know there's definitely like a degree to which you can embrace things not being perfectly clean and perfectly bright all the time yeah i it's funny you mentioned brightness because that was my (laughs) that was my (laughs) biggest stress like finishing mixing this album it's like is this bright enough like i'm pretty sure this isn't bright (laughs) enough but this isn't supposed to be bright like these sounds yeah. aren't bright. Do I really want to boost this EQ by like <laughs> boost the high end by like 10 dBs on the whole song? It's like, I don't. Yeah. But yeah, I absolutely agree. It's taken a while to accept that, but I'm kind of learning to love it because it, I don't know, it doesn't feel, I don't know, I feel a bit more creative, at least me personally. Totally. I, I think that's exactly what I was about to say. Like it allows more room for creativity because you're not worried, oh, is me doing this particular processing to this guitar going to make problems for my mix later on you can just do it and yeah, if it sounds like, cool this you'll be like kicktail perfect exactly so kind of going back on an idea you said earlier i just want to talk a little bit more on the idea of like learning to trust your taste when it comes to music because i think that's like one of the most important pieces of advice that i could give to newer producers because at the end of the day that's kind of all you have everybody has the same tools and knowledge and it's your taste that makes you unique as a human and as an artist so you have to learn to be able to trust that because that's the only way you're going to be able to create things that are new and create things that you vibe with. Because otherwise, like you're just going off other people's opinions and it's tough to really create something that's new and interesting. And you're not going to get any finished products if you're just consistently second guessing yourself being like, oh, is this good enough? Is this too bright? Is this too mixed? Like anything like that. Yeah. And it's just, it's just tiring. Like I actually, like even with Glow, with those two friends telling me to release it, um, I owe a lot to the very few close people over the years who have kind of been my second set of ears to help me judge things. Yeah. Um, I know, but yeah, I, did, I, did, I honestly, it's just really difficult to get to that point. I think um, even if you're there, you might just not know it. Like for me, I'm super hard on myself um, to, and not in like a beneficial way. It's almost detrimental to my like ability to, to put out songs. So um, it took me a long time to like actually accept that like I could make good things. <laughs> I'm the same way, so I feel you on that. Yeah, that's, it's a it's a <laughs> it's tiring. 
Cool. So kind of moving into what your current situation looks like, I'm curious, do you have any habits or routines right now, whether inside or outside of music, that just help you to maintain the productivity and consistency that you have now? I do treat it like kind of a normal job. Um, I mean, I'll wake up, take my dog for a walk, eat, eat breakfast, and then I kind of give myself set hours every day. Um, I mean, unless I have deadlines or there's something I make that I'm just super obsessed with, I'll I'll kind of force myself to stop at five or six. Just and I think I think that stops me from burning myself out. And I think I mean I think it's important to put in hours every day. Like take the Stephen King yeah. approach. Um, just just showing up and at least putting in some. It'll allow you the, allow you the opportunity to create, even if it's garbage. Yeah. And if it is garbage, at least you're getting it out of the way. And I don't know. I I think by having a separation of like it's time to work on music. Okay, now I can with my yeah. wife. Um, I know. Then I I think it kind of gives like it gives me a bit of a separate mindset once it's time to work on music. I don't know. Hopefully that makes sense. It's totally. Uh, <laughs> I think that I don't know. Kind of like checking in and just clocking in those hours and not feeling guilty if you didn't get a track out of it, but just knowing like, Hey, I put in my eight hours. That's all that I can control. Like, I think that's an interesting idea yeah. with music because, you know, input doesn't necessarily equal output with input being hours and output being music. But what you can control is how much um, focus time you're putting in, in the studio and the DAW. And it sounds like that's kind of your MO. Like, Hey, I was here from nine to five. doesn't matter whether or not I made something, I did what I need to. Now I can get on with my life outside of that. Yeah, exactly. I I feel so much better at night, even if I spend a day making absolute trash than if I, I don't know, got frustrated after an hour and basically yeah. just did other stuff. I, I'd rather know I tried. Um, and uh, don't get me wrong. It's there are some days where it's just like yeah. this, <laughs> this isn't happening. And I I don't want to get too burnt out. So I, I give myself some some off days but the most successful people i know are also spend the most time writing <laughs> writing music that i know for me it's just like finding that balance that works for you like i'm not somebody that can put in 80 hours a week with music i would much rather find oh, not either. a yeah. 40 and make that 40 as focused as possible by being intentional about the time that i'm doing and then outside of that making sure I'm feeding my creativity and just being a normal freaking human and not thinking about music for the rest of the time and like trying to give myself that balance. Yeah, man, you and me both. Like that's, that's the thing. Like I love music, but I, I also want, I'd lose my mind if I had to, to work that much. And I, I like other things outside of music. So yeah, I, <laughs> I want to do those things too. It's so important to have that balance. And I think when I, um, graduated college and first moved to LA to kind of pursue music, I was just so laser focused on nothing but music. And I was miserable because I only had one thing in my life and it wasn't going the way that I wanted it to. And the second that I started bringing in more outside influences and inputs and like went back to hiking, started playing basketball again, started to like hang out with people. My music was better because of it, even though I was spending less time on it. But that time was so much more valuable because I was in a better headspace. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm, I'm the exact same way. I, and I, I actually, I mean, I've even tried to s start more hobbies that are still creative too. Like, cause I mean, there's stuff I, I do that isn't creative. Um, but like, 
I don't know I like taking pictures. I just got a um, digital like drawing pad like a month ago just to start messing around with that. Even though I can only draw stick figures, but <laughs> <laughs> it's something to do. Yeah. And you never know. I think that's super cool. I've done that myself, and I think it's nice to have something that is creative that there's zero pressure whatsoever to do anything with. Yeah, because exactly. like even if you're in the studio, like there's still like a hint of pressure. Like if you're working on a remix or if you've got a deadline and it's like nice to, you know, kind of tickle that creative bone with something else that you absolutely do not need. I think photography is good. Um, like I do like drawing on my iPad. There's like so many different things that you can do that, I don't know, can kind of like refuel you when it comes to creativity. If you're really deep in the music hole, especially for people that have been doing it for like three or four or more years, I found for myself, that's been really helpful. Yeah, no, I, it's, I, I'm really with you there. So before okay. um, we were talking about you finishing up the Masters for your album, I believe this is the first album that you're releasing. So I kind of want to talk about your headspace going into developing and releasing your first full-length EP. It was kind of non-existent at first, um, if that makes sense. I, Because I know I've, I've touched on the whole accepting, like, I'm, I'm now an artist thing, and... Mm-hmm. I had sort of a slow development from, okay, um, I just want to do like singles and make remixes. Um, I, like, I don't care if they really deviate too much. Um, and this was after like the new disco phase um, to, okay, I kind of am dialing into the sound. And at this point, and even the thought of an EP was like hard pass. Like, yeah, <laughs> I do not have that kind of vision. And then, um, I started talking with uh, the label Lowly Palace, and they're like, hey, you should think about doing an EP. And I don't know what happened, but that flipped the weird switch for me. And then a couple months later, I released my four-track EP Anywhere. I just, I really liked how how that felt to actually complete more of like a, a legitimate like full project instead of a one-off single. And I think even before that EP came out, I started on my album and I knew I just wanted to, to kind of expand on that EP sound a bit because I wasn't quite done with that vibe. Yeah. And like specific direction wise, I, my, the biggest thing of note would probably just be, I wanted, I wanted to incorporate a lot more guitar. Um, I want, cause I, I'm personally not, I don't really enjoy DJing and I'd rather give yeah. live performances and um, yeah, so I, I figured if I, if I do a little more guitar focused songs and I mean, not only does that fit into the sort of indie EDM vibe, then it's also something I can perform on stage, which I actually did last May. Um, I played, <laughs> I had to play an hour long show and I didn't have the music for it. So I think I played like eight of the unfinished song songs from my album <laughs> And a lot of guitar. It was a good time. It's cool, though. I like that idea of developing this album to a degree to be played live and be able to be performed live. Like, I think that's a cool intention, especially in the indie electronic space that you're sitting in. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, I, I don't know. Because I was also in this weird space. Like my music wasn't suitable to like DJ in clubs. I mean, if I did that, I'd just basically be playing other people's music. And, um, I didn't, I also just didn't have anything I could really perform unless I was just kind of, I don't know, like queuing stuff in Ableton, but I, I'm, I wasn't big on that. So I, 
don't know, it seemed like a happy medium because <laughs> I'm not a great guitar player, but yeah, I can I can play it at least. <laughs> does this kind of line up with your intention to play more live shows in the future too? It does, yeah. I because it's it is kind of the next big crucial step that I need to take and I mean, I know plenty of other people in the EDM world do live performances, but I think it's still it's still, I don't know, provides a cool experience for people who go to shows like over just the traditional yeah. DJing, because um, I think with just normal DJing, it's about the atmosphere and just like having a lot of people having a good time and dancing. But with the show, it's more involved and people can watch you playing guitar and whatnot. I don't know. It's I love that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Cool. So uh, one more question and then we'll kind of wrap things up. I know you've given a lot of really great advice so far, but we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. If you're going to give them a couple pieces of advice to give them the best odds of success moving forward with music, what would you say? I think the biggest thing I can think of is to avoid overwhelming yourself. Mm -hmm. um, as a producer, you have to, you have to wear so many different yeah. hats, like you're part songwriter, you're part mixing engineer if, if you're not sending your music out you're i mean you're you have that mastering hat on yeah. too and sound designer especially now with all that like information on those things so easily accessible it's um it's so easy to just i mean shit even i'm still overwhelmed by it sometimes if i'm trying to learn new things and so i would i mean obviously keep try and learn things that you enjoy like if your favorite thing on the planet is sound design then absolutely spend a whole bunch of time working in yeah. synths and whatnot but um i still i would focus at first on songwriting and just because i know we touched on this like good song that doesn't sound good is better than a bad yeah. song that does and i also think you'll be more motivated um to like really put in the hours doing the technical stuff if you know you're making like the level of songs that I don't know like you you want you you want to put in the time like mixing and mastering these songs or learning how to do it because you know your songs are like a level where it's it's not a waste I don't know it sounds kind of dickish no 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 I I get that like, <laughs> because you, I, I'm not <laughs> you need to like craft and curate yeah. it to a point where it's palatable and you're meeting people halfway with your music yeah and because I, I, I guess the only reason I thought it's dickish I'm not saying that if you're starting out the songs you're making aren't worth the time of like mixing and stuff but for your own like head i think it's um if you're like if you just want to make awesome songs like it's it's easier to put in like the the long like strenuous hours of turning little dials when you know when you have a song that you're really happy with cool well, with that, we'll wrap things up for this episode. You can all find Adam's music in the description of this podcast, so go give that a listen as this episode is just about over. Kyle, it's been great chatting with you, and I appreciate you being on the show. Uh, thank you so much. This was great. 